guys, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Today we are going to be delving deep into the background of the life sciences company, Emergent Biosolutions, the manufacturer of the controversial anthrax vaccine and arguably one of the most corrupt pharmaceutical companies to ever exist. We'll also be talking about the 2001 anthrax attacks, which conveniently for Emergent Biosolutions, rescued them from financial calamity. This company's past and the anthrax attacks may seem like ancient history to some, but actually the parallels between what we'll be covering today and the current coronavirus crisis are numerous and of critical importance, especially since Emergent Biosolutions is set to manufacture several of the leading coronavirus vaccine candidates in the U.S., despite years upon years of scandals. Joining me to discuss this and more is Dr. Merrill Nass. Merrill Nass is an internal medicine physician with degrees from MIT in the University of Mississippi. Her areas of expertise include anthrax, biodefense, biological warfare, and Gulf War syndrome, as well as vaccine safety and efficacy. Dr. Nass is also the first person in the world to have studied the characteristics of an epidemic and proved that it was due to biological warfare. That epidemic, which was of anthrax, occurred in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, during its civil war between 1978 and 1981. Dr. Nass has given seven testimonies to six different House and Senate committees on the anthrax vaccine, the anthrax letters, bioterrorism mitigation, and Gulf War syndrome. She helped form a coalition of service members and their families to investigate the illnesses, now known as Gulf War syndrome, and to end mandatory anthrax vaccination for members of the military. That group filed suit against the vaccine, which was and still is manufactured by Emergent Biosolutions in federal court, leading to the revocation of that vaccine's license. However, the FDA later reapproved the anthrax vaccine, even though it still did not meet the requirements for safety and efficacy. Dr. Nass has been on the trail of emergent biosolutions and the anthrax vaccine probably longer than anyone else. She was also very nearly the woman who brought them down. And this is why there is really no one I would rather talk to about this company, the anthrax vaccine, and what it means for the coronavirus crisis. Welcome to Unlimited Hangout, Dr. Nass. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So from what I understand about the anthrax vaccine, uh, which is uh, for people that don't know, called anthrax vaccine adsorbed or AVA, um, also known by its brand name Biothrax. Um, this vaccine was originally created in response to the U.S.'s bioweapons research involving anthrax back before U.S. bioweapons research was, at least publicly anyway, ended in 1969. But what's incredible to me is that somehow this vaccine, which was originally for researchers working at Fort Detrick and similar institutions, um, it never went through much of the required testing for vaccines, such as, you know, uh, tests for safety and and for effectiveness uh, before it was administered to U.S. troops prior to the first Gulf War. And then again, a few years later, when the Department of Defense made that vaccine mandatory for all U.S. servicemen. So since, you know, the dark side of this vaccine better than anyone, how did this blunder come to pass and what were the consequences for U.S. servicemen who received this untested vaccine? So the United States had an offensive biological warfare program which started around 1942 and um, they were making a variety of bioweapons to potentially be used on Germany and Japan uh, if the war didn't end uh, before they were needed. And we, in fact, had designed anthrax weapons. They were being, uh, anthrax cattle cakes were being manufactured at Terre Haute, Indiana for possible use against Germany. And 
Um, so in the 40s and 50s, we, we didn't stop this program after the war ended. It continued and expanded. But sometimes workers in the uh, researchers or other people who worked in the biological warfare factories would catch the diseases they were studying or that they were exposed to. And there were a couple of deaths of workers in the 1950s from anthrax. And so George Wright, who worked at the uh, Fort Detrick establishment, it was originally Camp Detrick during the war, um, started developing an anthrax vaccine that the workers could be vaccinated with. And that was true of many other um, biological warfare agents. So Fort Detrick developed its own vaccines. They were not licensed. In general, they weren't licensed, but they were for the use of the workers. And they also had a program in the 50s and uh, 60s called Operation White Coat, where Seventh-day Adventist youth who uh, whose uh, religious leaders had made an arrangement with the federal government that since they were conscientious objectors, they could not be sent to war, but they would instead be volunteers at Fort Detrick to have these diseases or vaccines tested on them. So there are a group of, of Operation White Coat, Seventh-day Adventists, who are also receiving these vaccines. Um, be, the FDA did not begin licensing vaccines until 1972, although it had been licensing drugs for decades before that. And vaccines were basically being given, you know, uh, a very easy go-ahead by an agency uh, that was located in the NIH, and it was called the Division of Biologics Standards. Now, you may recall there were a few scandals um, in the 1950s about vaccines that had been approved through this agency but had serious problems, and one of those was um, lots of smallpox vaccine that had, not smallpox, polio, excuse me, that had live polio in them and um, were released. They were issued, they were given to children in the mid-50s, and children came down with polio and some died. So... It was decided to move that vaccine uh, approval agency into the FDA, where hopefully there would be much more oversight. And that happened in 1972. And then the FDA went through a process where they had to review all the vaccines that had licenses that had been issued by the earlier agency, uh, because the earlier agency had not been rigorous. So anthrax vaccine was one of the bacterial vaccines that was put into that process. And some of the old vaccines, there was no way they were going to pass. And the manufacturers just simply asked for the licenses to be revoked. Um, for anthrax vaccine, really, it should not have passed. Um, but it sort of entered a netherworld because the Defense Department wanted to be able to continue to use it. Most of the doses that were made were being used in animal experiments. There were only a you know, small number of people, mainly at Fort Detrick, that were getting it. Later, there were lies spread that veterinarians were getting it and people at agricultural colleges. But um, I and others called many veterinary schools, and none of them had ever used anthrax vaccine for veterinarians or students. 
So basically, it was a vaccine that was used only in bi biological warfare programs. The reason for that is there was only about one case per decade of anthrax in the United States, and it responded well to penicillin or other antibiotics. So there's, of course, no reason to use a vaccine, uh, at least for, for normal anthrax. Um, so, when the FDA formed a committee to review the bacterial vaccines, the committee looked at the paperwork for anthrax vaccine and realized it had never gone through proper channels, and particularly there was no evidence of efficacy. So, um, what happened was that there was an interim rule uh, sort of allowing the anthrax vaccine to continue to be used, but FDA, because it didn't have the required efficacy, and I would say safety also, data <clears throat> to approve it according to its own regulations, the status of it was that it was maintained under an interim rule. There had never been a final rule issued on it, and a comment period. So apparently the FDA process requires before they issue um, a license issued a license for these vaccines to get comments from the public and respond to them so um, suddenly in 1997 while the vaccine was still in this status it was decided after President Clinton and some others in the administration had read a scary book about biological warfare written by Richard Preston that we should start vaccinating our soldiers against biological warfare threats. And some people in the military, some doctors and scientists suggested that up to perhaps 75 different organisms could uh, have vaccines developed for them and that we would vaccinate soldiers and then they would be impervious to most biological warfare and could continue to operate in an environment that was contaminated with biological warfare agents. So that was the pie-in-the-sky hope. Obviously, this would be a wonderful thing for the military, medical, industrial complex, those companies that would make the vaccines. The problem was only two vaccines for this purpose already had licenses. One was anthrax, and it was only a partial license, and one was smallpox. So ignoring the potential problems, Secretary Cohen of the Defense Department announced in the end of 1997 that everybody in the military was going to be vaccinated with the anthrax vaccine, and that there would be future plans to vaccinate everybody with a smallpox vaccine and then maybe others. So a lot of people got upset about that. I happened to be aware that there'd been a congressional hearing a year or two earlier that had looked at Gulf War syndrome and said, gee, you know, it could be due to the vaccines we used. And it turned out that unlicensed or some unlicensed, some licensed anthrax vaccine had been used in the Gulf War, but so had a lot of other vaccines, some of them unlicensed in the U.S. And, and the Defense Department was well aware that if it was unlicensed, you couldn't make the troops take it if they were on U.S. soil, but there was a loophole. And if they were outside of the United States, you could give them drugs or vaccines that were licensed in other countries, even if they weren't licensed in the U.S. Wow. So um, Gulf War soldiers, in some cases, were asked to sign 
consent forms to accept experimental vaccines and drugs, but they weren't allowed to see the consent forms. So a piece of paper that was folded over so they couldn't see what it said was given to them and they just had to put their signature at the bottom. And so that's how the Gulf War went. And FDA had signed a memorandum of understanding with the Defense Department that basically some of these practices were okay because of this emergency. We knew Saddam Hussein had anthrax because we had given Saddam Hussein anthrax. Right. <clears throat> and it was, a, it was a strain that, you know, we had weaponized back in the 50s. So uh, somebody had to do something and, you know, FDA went along and DOD went, uh, went along with this plan. Um, after there were criticisms about the process by which soldiers were vaccinated, what vaccines they got, there were no good records. The Defense Department classified the numbers. For example, Defense Department said 150,000 soldiers that went to the Gulf got anthrax vaccine, but never produced a record to um, show that that was a, a valid number. And of the 700,000 or so American soldiers who went to the Gulf, about 200,000, uh, maybe more, came down with an illness that was given the rubric of Gulf War Syndrome. Gulf War Syndrome being a combination of symptoms, including fatigue, chronic pain, and cognitive or psychological impairment. So the brain wasn't working right, People were limited in, in their activity and stamina, and they would hurt. They would either hurt for no reason, or if they something you know they sprained their ankle, they would hurt a lot more than normal. And that was defined by the CDC. And as I said, over 30% of troops that came back wound up meeting that definition. And a smaller number, maybe 4% of troops that were vaccinated in preparation for going to the Gulf but never went they also developed this syndrome. Whereas of those who weren't vaccinated and weren't prepared to go to the Gulf, only about 1% of them could be said to develop this syndrome, which is similar to fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. Have I, should I stop here or? No, I mean, that's, um, no, I mean, that, that's a really in-depth, um, great answer with a lot of background, because a lot of people, I think, have forgotten about Gulf War Syndrome and the fact that, you know, a lot of the players involved in that vaccination ended up being involved later in different ways in, in events uh, in or around the dates of the 2001 anthrax attacks, um, which I think is, is definitely interesting and maybe we can get into in a little bit. But... Um, you know, for now, since you were bringing up, uh, or since you brought up a little bit ago, the decision to make anthrax vaccine mandatory for U.S. servicemen announced by uh, former Secretary of Defense under Clinton, William Cohen. Um, what's interesting to me is that Cohen attempted to sell this in, in some ways to the public by going on um, TV shows with a, I think it was like a five or 15, I think like a five pound bag of sugar and, and making these uh, sort of doomsday claims that, you know, if that amount of anthrax was released, this is how many millions of people would die and sort of promoting the same, um, I guess, fear that had sort of allegedly anyway spurred the Clinton administration into action with respect to anthrax by reading that that book you mentioned, uh, which I believe is called The Cobra Effect or, mm -hmm. or something like that. Event. 
Right. Which actually, um, this this guy who used to work as at, you know at, at Fort Detrick as a um, bioweapons researcher back when that that program was active, William Patrick the Third, uh, he was actually the person that came up with the uh, disease, the Doomsday Disease, in in bioweapon described in that book. Um, he was consulted by Preston when he was writing it. And Bill Patrick was also influential in the decision to uh, have U.S. troops vaccinated before the Gulf War and, of course, was advising Clinton, um, you know, throughout uh, this period, including when the vaccine was, uh, you know, ordered to be mandatory. And also Patrick ends up being involved in some things we'll talk about later, um, contracting at um, some, you know, uh, Pentagon and CIA linked uh, defense contractors that were doing some odd experiments on on anthrax. So definitely a lot going on with anthrax in this period period of time. Um, but really quickly, um, the same year, right, that Cohen, um, or, or roughly around the same time that, that Cohen announced this policy, there was a company that was created uh, that at the time was called Bioport. Today, uh, as I'm, uh, you know, they're known as Emergent Biosolutions. Uh, they emerged from seeming, uh, seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, they acquired the vaccine and the only factory in the U.S. licensed to produce it. Um, and then, you know, right after they win all these lucrative contracts to supply the Department of Defense with anthrax vaccine. So I was wondering if you could go over maybe some of the people who were behind the founding of Bioport and how that company's behavior after securing what was essentially a monopoly over the anthrax vaccine resulted in, you know, these huge or a, a, a major corruption scandal that was essentially covered up. Okay, so... The state of Michigan, like the state of Massachusetts, had um, a historical vaccine production facility for making childhood vaccines um, in Lansing. And this was a very large facility with many buildings on it, and they produced a lot of not only vaccines, but some other blood products. And they were the they were the only producer in the United States of anthrax vaccine and rabies vaccine. But um, being a state-owned operation, they were getting run down. The state didn't want to put a lot of money into the building, and some of the top employees came up with a plan that they could partner with a, a deep pockets company and buy the plant from the state. And there was some shenanigans, I was told by a, a member of the Mi Michigan legislature, Ling Brewer, at the time. So the a small group of employees were looking, were looking to partner with a company. And initially, they had partnered with SmithKline. But for some reason, there was a, some, some corruption or found out, and that did not go through. Um, then the former head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral William Crow, was had been in England. He had he had changed parties, supported Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton had then made him ambassador to England. While he was in England, he met uh, a sort of a corrupt family called the El Hibris, and the El Hibris were involved with selling anthrax vaccine made by the UK in, in Salisbury, Wiltshire, to the Saudis for the first Gulf War. So the Brits were also making anthrax vaccine, and the El Hibris were able to 
buy it and then increase the price by at least 100 times and sell it to the Saudis. Um, Crow got wind that this facility that was the only one making anthrax vaccine for the military was up for sale. He partnered with the El Hibris and then also the uh, this little group of uh, people who worked at the lab and Crow put none of his money in and the the local workers put under a million dollars in and the El Hibris threw in about three million and with promises to pay the state of Michigan off over the next few years, they were able to buy this factory. <clears throat> However, what had happened was that, was that the year before, in 1997, when the Secretary of Defense announced that he was going to start vaccinating all soldiers in the military, 2.4 million people with anthrax vaccine, and at that time it was a six-dose initial course over a year and a half, with a yearly booster, okay? So if you were starting a 20-year career in the military, you would wind up with almost 25 separate shots over that career. So that's a lot of money um, for the company making it. Uh, so Bioport bought this whole company, then they started selling off the licenses for the other vaccines and the other products that had come along with the company to focus solely on anthrax. <clears throat> However, they did not actually ink the deal with the Secretary of the Army. The Secretary of the Army owned the equipment for the, all the anthrax equipment and bought all the product and paid for and paid uh, this company Bioport to test it, to store it, to label it. So that there were many contracts all around the same product but the deal was not signed until the secretary of the army gave bioport the al hibris and admiral crow complete immunity from liability so what does complete immunity mean it means if soldiers got sick from this vaccine the army would, would be responsible for, for dealing with that or paying them off. And that if the vaccine did not work to protect against anthrax, again, any liability would be on the uh, responsibility of the army. So the day after the army signed that contract, um, El Hibri and Crow um, bought the factory. That was in September of 1998. But what had happened is the FDA had not been inspecting this plant, even though they're required to inspect vaccine plants every two years, but they had left it to the army because this was really an, an army thing and civilians were not receiving this vaccine unless they happened to be, you know, in the white coat program or a civilian army employee at Fort Detrick. So there had been very few people getting the vaccine and the FDA had been hands off. But in late 1997, they thought, oh, we haven't gone into this plant in probably more than a decade. We better go in and see what's going on. Maybe the FDA already knew there was a lot of bad stuff going on there. They walked in and they found the place was a mess. <clears throat> there was mold in many of the stored vaccine vials. There were it was bacterial growth. They found the records were terrible. 
instead of the company making new vaccine every three years to replace their old stocks, they would just take the old bottles, retest them, and keep testing them over and over and over till they passed a test and then slap a new label on them as if they were new. And so some of the vials of vaccine were 10 years old, not, and they only had a, I think, two-year expiration at that point. Uh, so what FDA did is said the process of making this vaccine has not been validated. We're shutting the plant down right now. You cannot make another dose. And we are quarantining 9 million of the 11 million doses that you have on hand, which had stopper material or bacterial or fungal growth to the naked eye. But it looks like 2 million of the doses are not too bad. So you really want to start this anthrax program going. We will allow you to do so with those 2 million doses while you clean this plant up and then we will reapprove it. So... Um, again, this is on the Army's dollar. Even though the plant is owned by Bioport, it got bulldozed to the ground. Not every building at the, at the Lansing site, but the anthrax section of the factory was bulldozed, rebuilt, and then um, they tried to make vaccine again, but it wouldn't be approved by the FDA. So the factory sat there and by, and that it didn't matter because Bioport kept getting contracts from the army to, you know, test new vaccines, store the vaccine, you know, do this and that, whatever they did, they got paid for. So they weren't in dire straits. However, there, in 1999, there were a series of five hearings in Congress that I attended, I was a witness at one, and I helped to provide other witnesses. And this looked at every aspect of the vaccine program, from the ability of the company to actually produce a good vaccine, to soldiers who had gotten ill from the vaccine, to evidence that this has never been shown to be an effective vaccine to begin with, especially in response to inhaled anthrax. Um, and what was the background of the people running it and all sorts of things. And uh, at the end of those hearings, the uh, Committee on Government Reform wrote a majority report saying that this program should be looked at as experimental and every soldier receiving the vaccine should be entered into a, basically a clinical trial and have their health observed because there are so many problems. Well, Congress didn't really go along with that. And, but the FDA knew to keep the plant closed. So between 2000 and 2001, the military ran out of anthrax vaccine. They basically had, and it was mandatory. So if you refused it, you had either a court martial or an article 13, which meant you were docked a month's pay. You got shamed and you got extra duties. Um, and it was, a, it was a miserable thing. You got treated very, very badly. Some people were held down. There were over 100 court martials. Um, there were a lot of TV news spots about what was going on. Um, many parents were up in arms. You know, everything that was unearthed about this company showed problems. Everything was questionable, but they were still making money. However, 
by the summer of 2001, Karl Rove had said, this, is, this anthrax vaccine is a problem for us. And, you know, Congress had written this report saying it'd be good to stop this program. And so I review process was going on in the Pentagon to actually end the anthrax vaccine program. Nobody wanted to end it because it was supposed to be number one of this whole series of biological warfare vaccines, right? And if you've got this whole big program you're hoping to bring forward, you don't want the first thing to fail. Right. So so there was, you know, strong push to keep it, but by summer of 2001, it looked like it was about to go away. And so everybody was getting happy. And then the anthrax letters showed up after 9-11 and everything changed. So Tommy Thompson, who was the, this was under Bush, um, was the secretary of HHS said, we will get the anthrax vaccine plant licensed and we'll have anthrax vaccine for any civilians, you know, who want it. So in January of 2002, FDA reapproved this rebuilt factory and anthrax vaccine started to be made again, and the military was able to restart their big program. Wow. Well, one thing that's interesting to me uh, is the fact that some of those hearings that you that you referenced that were going on in this period of time, some of the people that testified in favor of the anthrax vaccine and in favor of Bioport or emergent biosolutions ended up later being appointed to um, emergent biosolutions board, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, I wish I could remember all of them, but uh, the, the woman who had been head of vaccines at the FDA joined the board of emergent afterwards, and she is currently still on the board. The woman who had become the Army Surgeon General joined the board and is on the board now. Um, Jerome Hauer, <clears throat> who is responsible for all, all sorts of things uh, that had to do with 9-11. Right. And who initially didn't like the vaccine, switched to 180, became a big vaccine proponent, and is part of the board. Um, General George Julwan is a member of the board now. Uh, Louis Sullivan, who is a former um, Secretary of Health and Human Services. Many of the people who are on the board have worked basically as lobbyists for the company. So they have managed to go back to their agencies and help to make things happen for the company. They've got somebody else on the board who's uh, an old CIA InQtel person and another person named Zolt Harsanyi who basically was doing the same things as the Alhibris with botulinum toxin, you know, buying it from the from Brit from the Brits at Porton Down and reselling it and um, I believe I could be wrong about this, but I believe he had basically the the patent or the exclusivity for bot talks in the United States. He has um, followed a path similar to Fouad El-Hibri. Fouad El-Hibri was a German-Lebanese citizen, I think mother German, father Mm -hmm. Lebanese, um, who 
was told he needed to get American citizenship in order to buy this company because it was critical to American defense and we couldn't sell that to a foreigner. So he, and he was married to a, a woman who uh, was or had become an American citizen. So he too became an American and uh, lives in Maryland. Right, and he subsequently uh, started up a company with um, a, a prominent guy at HHS, uh, Craig Vanderwagen, I believe his name is. He was the first HHS Assistant Secretary Secretary for Preparedness and Response. And the other person uh, which who holds that current position also started this company with Alhebrian Vanderwagen, Robert Cadlick, right, who's currently mm-hmm. overseeing large parts of um, HHS's coronavirus response. And last year simulated a pandemic influenza originating from China, uh, requiring vaccines to be produced in short order, among other things. Uh, definitely an interesting character, uh, to say the least. And what's interesting, too, is that, as you mentioned, um, you know, Emergent Biosolutions has essentially an army of very powerful lobbyists. Um, and Robert Cadlick actually at one point was a lobbyist um, with, with ties to Emergent Biosolutions, which has come to light uh, more than ever in, in recent months uh, due to some, some different reports that have gotten out there. So it's definitely um, interesting and very deeply concerning, I would argue, um, you know, the, con- the sort of the revolving door this company has with government and, you know, the conflicts of interest that arise from that. Um, One thing that I think is interesting, though, regarding William Crow, who was one of the people behind, um, you know, uh, creating this uh, company, you know, Crow may not be known to a lot of people, but he was very close to someone that, uh, you know, some listeners may know better, uh, Frank Carlucci, former deputy director of the CIA, uh, Secretary of Defense. And when Carlucci was Secretary of Defense, he worked uh, very closely with Crow and they developed a very close relationship. Um, and of course, Frank Carlucci, during the period of time Bioport was being created, was head of the Carlisle Group, um, which of, of course is is controversial and tie- with uh, you know ties to um, 9-11, among other things, right? And also to George Bush Sr., um, who was a lobbyist at one point for the Carlisle Group, had some rather suspect meetings in and around 9-11 in relation uh, to the Carlisle Group. But it's been it's been alleged by some people that the Carlisle Group actually had stock in Bioport. Have you ever come across any evidence of that? I have heard that story, uh, but I don't know the answer. It, it would make sense. Right. Well, definitely worth looking into. Hopefully <laughs> more, more on that will come to light at some point because there are a lot of um, you know, weird ties with either former or current, you know, intelligence or defense people in and around mm-hmm. uh, what was going on with the emergent or Bioport vaccine, later emergent biosolutions, and also the 2001 anthrax attacks. So just before 9-11, actually just a few days before 9-11, um, and, you know, a few weeks before the 2001 anthrax attacks, there was a report in the, in the New York Times, right, that noted that beginning in the late 1990s, around 1997, 1998, when a lot of, uh, you know, this with Bioport and the mandatory vaccination policy was going on, both the Department of Defense and the CIA were involved in rather suspect research that involved anthrax or bioweapons. So one of those was called Project Jefferson. It was run by the Defense Intelligence Agency, and uh, that project sought to create a more uh, virulent strain of anthrax through genetic modification, allegedly this was being done to test the effectiveness of the anthrax vaccine, 
right? And then another one was known as Clear Vision. This one was overseen by the CIA in conjunction with a, a, a place called Patel Memorial Institute, which is um, based in Ohio, I believe, and they do classified contract work for the U.S. intelligence and defense communities. And Clear Vision specifically was studying a, quote, a supposed model of a germ bomb for disseminating anthrax, but was allegedly uh, benign, <laughs> or so they claimed, right? And then there was mm-hmm. also another classified program going on at the same period of time where um, there was uh, essentially a model bioweapons factory uh, set up in the Nevada desert. So I thought this. Sorry, Project Bacchus. Pro- right. So I, I, I forgot the name of that one. <laughs> so thanks for adding that. But what's interesting is that really the only, there's very few reports that talk about these programs, um, but the New York Times article and then the subsequent book called Germs by the authors of that piece um, at the Times, they um, stated the following in their in their report, quote, simultaneous experiments involving a model of a germ bomb, a factory to make biological agents, and the development of more potent anthrax would draw vociferous protests from Washington if conducted by a country the United States viewed as suspect, end quote. So what do you make of these programs and their having taken place so close in time to the anthrax attacks? Sorry, there's a lot of different things I, I might say. Um, first of all, the expo- Judith Miller having exposed these programs, um, led they, that led to a lot of scrutiny because many people thought that the, the Biological Weapons Convention, which, the United, which is an international treaty the United States had initiated and had come into force in 1975, so 26 years earlier, um, precluded... Uh, making relatively large quantities of, of things that could be used as biological weapons. However, that treaty did um, rely on intent, and the United States had made sure to thwart strengthening the treaty. So when the treaty first came into play, um, of course, there are a lot of international meetings about it, and it was said that we'll start with a relatively weak treaty, but the plan is that every six years we're going to have meetings, and we're going to figure out ways to strengthen this treaty and make it more and more meaningful. Well, with those meetings, the United States would always get in the way or have their proxies get in the way of um, putting in, implementing measures for doing inspections and having punishments for countries that didn't comply with the terms of the treaty. So over time, the United States um, doctrine on, on what this treaty meant changed. And basically, we started to ignore it and feel that it so for a long time, most people in the United States and hopefully elsewhere thought that the treaty prevented doing research such as what is now called gain of function, what used to be called biological warfare research, to make a pathogen, to take a microorganism and make it more infectious or make it spread through the air or make it cause a more serious disease or get into more people or get into more organs. Um, We thought that was basically banned by the treaty. But over time, the U.S. 
official interpretation of that treaty was that these things were not banned. And probably an underlying assumption was since there were no inspection mechanisms or verification and punishment mechanisms, that everybody was probably just doing what they wanted to do anyway. And so the treaty didn't have a lot of meaning. So anyway, bar- the the book Germs in the New York Times article of September 4th, 2001 came out and people started scratching their head and said, oh, gee, the U.S. government's actually making this powdered anthrax and testing to see whether they can buy off-the-shelf equipment to make it and create a bomb and blah, 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 make it more virulent. You know, what does that mean? Well, before that real discussion could get underway, a week later, 9-11 happened. And then, you know, three weeks later, the anthrax letters were sent. So a, an ethical, you know, discussion of what that research really meant in terms of treaty compliance has never happened. Um, but it did make clear that the United States had stores of powdered dried anthrax on hand. And I pointed out that in a congressional hearing in 1975, it had been acknowledged by someone from the, C- from the CIA that when the U.S. program shut down as a result of the Biological Weapons Convention in the early 70s, the CIA had thought it was just it was just too terrible to get rid of all these wonderful, you know, assassination weapons and other biological agents. So they had a few put into storage with a private company so that they wouldn't all be destroyed. And so among the things that were saved, and this, there's a list of what was saved in the congressional hearing record, um, was several grams of anthrax. I think 100 grams of anthrax. So we knew that there was that stockpile. We knew there was a stockpile from these uh, experiments that had been done under the Clinton administration. There may well have been others. And there may have been anthrax anywhere else from other countries that had been working on it. Many countries, at least 10 or 20, had had biological warfare or biological defense programs. So um, when the letters came, it was not at all clear where that anthrax had come from. The FBI eventually, so that they could close the case without actually doing a real investigation to find the perpetrator, um, they, they did a backwards investigation of going from one patsy to the next until they finally got a dead body. Once they had a dead body to pin it on, they didn't have to go to court and produce their evidence because they never had any evidence. Um, They made up a story based on a mix of uh, circumstantial evidence, lies, and uh, embroidery, and pinned the anthrax letters on Bruce Ivins and claimed that he had to have made the anthrax in the weeks preceding the sending of the two sets of letters, even though there's no, there's very good evidence that that was impossible to do and that the anthrax did not come from Fort Detrick for two big reasons. One being that there was a contaminant in the first set of anthrax in the letters, uh, a different bacterium, and that has never been found at Fort Detrick. Um, and the second was that there was silicon in the spore coat in a in an odd fashion that would not have happened if you just grew the anthrax in a silicon containing medium and so there was some special method of preparation and the fbi said they were never able to reverse engineer and duplicate what that 
method of preparation was. So, and, and there were no spores like that at Fort Detrick. So for those reasons, the spores were not grown at Fort Detrick and Bruce Ivins couldn't have been the one who did it. But the FBI was careful not to investigate Dugway, Battelle, the anthrax vaccine manufacturer, and certain overseas labs that likely did have all the equipment um, and could have manufactured the anthrax, possibly even years before. Right. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because actually Battelle, um, who was doing those anthrax studies with the CIA, right, um, had actually teamed up with Bioport in 2000, I believe, the end of 2000, in an effort to help Bioport save their anthrax vaccine from losing uh, contracts and the conclusion of that program that was being examined in the summer of 2001, like you mentioned. So, you know, for anyone that wanted to do like an honest investigation and look, you know, investigate based on, you know, looking at who benefited the most from the attacks, it's very interesting that there was no, you know, investigation of of Bioport. But as you know, you mentioned the FBI's investigation into the attacks, the Amerithrax case, you know, I mean, it's just been criticized by by lots of people, journalists, scientists, academics, even former lead Amerithrax investigators that later became whistleblowers, right? So you already went over, um, you know, some of the reasons why the FBI's narrative, you know, has a lot of, uh, has, has, you know, uh, attracted that scrutiny. But I was wondering, in your opinion, um, in terms of the FBI's narrative about the anthrax attacks and about, about Bruce Ivins, what, in your opinion, are the most egregious flaws or gaps in that narrative? <laughs> if you can summarize. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole narrative is, is made up. Um, so every bit, none of it has any bearing on reality. So, um, the, the kind of person that Bruce was, was contrived by the FBI because they were able to control this woman who had had drug charges, gun charges, and had been a biker previously, but she'd just gotten a bachelor's degree at a local college in Frederick to be a therapist. And she wound up being a therapist for Ivan's she was under house arrest for another charge maybe a DUI um, at the time he right before he died and so the FBI was able to sort of put a stranglehold on her get her get all these statements out of her about crazy things Ivan's had said and done that were never supported by anybody else and disputed by others and then whip her into an undisclosed location for a year and a half, I think, uh, while the case, you know, was sort of settling down. And then somewhere around the time they were closing the case, they brought her out of the undisclosed location, had her make a rehearsed statement, and then she disappeared again. So basically, most of the case relies on her testimony, which is of no value. Um, the I, testimony oh, of sorry to interrupt, other... but um, I, I believe also that she was asked to, by the FBI, to take out a restraining order on Ivan's, and then that was later reported in the media as her having, you know, done that of her own accord, even though it was apparent, it came out later that it was the FBI that told her to get that. FBI accompanied her to the courthouse wow. to get the restraining order. Um, so... Five other anthrax scientists said it would have been impossible for Ivins or anyone else to have made the quantity of anthrax required given the equipment 
that they had at Fort Detrick in the time period the FBI said it was done. And as I said, nobody knew how to make that second set of anthrax, so that couldn't possibly have been done at Fort Detrick. FBI said they, the way they ruled people out was whether they knew how to make the anthrax in the letters or not. So they went, they claimed they had gone to all these anthrax scientists, including at Battelle and Dugway, and evaluated their knowledge and ruled them out. But of course, nobody knew how to make the anthrax in the second set. The, the first set of letters had ordinary anthrax that anyone could make. You could read a recipe and make it. The second set was uh, had this very special, unusual um, conglomeration of elements in it, indicating there was some kind of special processing, which has still not been defined for sure. And so we don't know where that was made. Um, basically, FBI tried its best to create a lone nut. So they went into everything about Ivan's background and then exaggerated it for, as you said, um, and thank you for saying this, they said Ivan's used to mail packages using fake names. And you pointed out they were the names of movie stars or sports stars. He wasn't, you know, it was a joke. He was quite a joker. And But the FBI would take these things and twist them. So they created a crazy case. I, I made a list of 35 lies or m- bits of misinformation in the Amerithrax um, report of the case. And the lawyers for 9-11 Truth are planning to ask uh, in the near future for a grand jury to reopen this case. Well, I certainly hope that happens, but I I tend to, you know, be a little cynical when it comes to to things like this being, you know, earnestly investigated by the government. But I definitely hope that, you know, I mean, this case really needs to be reopened just because of, you know, uh, the extensive cover up and, you know, what was justified in the aftermath of those anthrax attacks and, you know, the the policy implications, not just for health policy, but also in helping sell the war with Iraq, among other things. So, um... Moving on from Amerithrax, um, as I mentioned earlier when I introduced you, you helped file a successful lawsuit with a coalition of U.S. servicemen over the mandatory anthrax vaccinations, and that ruling was later undermined by the FDA. So um, I'm wondering, why did you decide to help build this coalition to fight against this this mandatory vaccination policy in the courts? And can you describe the efforts uh, to undermine what you were doing both during and after the ruling? Okay, I had um, written an article showing that anthrax had been used as a biological weapon in Zimbabwe and published that in 1992, which made me one of a very tiny number of Americans who actually knew anything about anthrax. And then, as I was in the middle of that research, the Gulf War happened, so suddenly everybody wants to know about anthrax and I had tons of interviews so I became known as an anthrax um, you know expert at that point and then afterwards people asked me to investigate what what was going on with Gulf War syndrome which I started to do and I wasn't particularly interested in anthrax vaccine or or vaccines in general in the 90s but um, I wound up getting a lot of uh, 
information by FOIA or information because the the Republicans in the Committee on Government. So it was a Republican Congress with President Bill Clinton and the Republicans were interested in um, undermining Clinton. And they also wanted to help military people. So a lot. So when the anthrax vaccine program got announced in 97, there were a lot of people who had been in the military from the Gulf War, which is only six, seven years earlier, and they knew the rumors that anthrax vaccine or some of the other vaccines had caused people to get sick and that there had been a big cover-up about it then. So they didn't want to take it. And there were some people, including an airman in Canada that I went to testify at his court-martial, um, who had gotten sick from anthrax vaccine during the Gulf, first Gulf War. And so he refused it. And he had a massive trial under the top military judge, Guy Bray, in Canada. And after hearing the evidence, Guy Bray decided that it, you, you couldn't ask anyone, according to Canadian law, to take a vaccine that could injure them, that had a high chance of injuring them. And so the anthrax vaccine program was ended in Canada in, I think, 2000. It was also ended, it started in England, but it wasn't, they've never had mandatory vaccinations in England. And uh, troops threw the vaccines overboard from ships, and they had a lot of, you know, protests. And so they stopped the program there. In Australia, they had the same thing. They would take, uh, members of the Navy out on ships and then vaccinate them. Often, I don't know if they did this in Australia, but with the U.S. troops, they would cut all radio communication um, from a ship and then announce they were going to vaccinate everybody with anthrax vaccine and then wouldn't reinstate the radio communication till after the vaccines had been administered. So there were all these sorts of egregious processes associated with the vaccine, which meant Troops knew the military had concerns about it and, and was trying to head off um, refusals. So, th- of course, that made them more suspicious. Um, anyway, people, I wrote a short article, very short article. I wrote it in an afternoon, just mentioning that there had been questions raised about the role of, of the anthrax vaccine in Gulf War syndrome. And this had been raised at a, at a congressional hearing in the U.S. and also raised in England. And that, in fact, the, in, the, in the extant literature on anthrax, it wasn't clear whether the vaccine worked or was safe. And so I just sent that to an internet mailing list of infectious disease professionals that I was a member of. But it got, it went viral. And the Lancet, which is, you know, the top medical journal in the world, hotkeyed to that little article of mine. And people who are desperate for information on the anthrax vaccine because their family members were going to get it, you know, would see it. And so I started getting zillions of calls. And then the vaccination started on March 15th of 1998. This was even before Bioport had bought the factory. And so it's still under Michigan. And immediately there were problems for the military. People were refusing then. And there was a lot of media coverage of this, even before Bioport got involved. So I became known I guess, 
because I was interviewed by the networks and the, the newspapers and things like this. And parents started to call. And then after people started getting the vaccine and getting sick, the soldiers would call me and I and they'd say, geez, you know, I got this vaccine and now I'm sick and I can't think straight and blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, gee, you know, vac- vaccines just don't do that. I don't I don't think this is a vaccine problem. But after 50 or 100 people had called me and told me the same story, I, you know, I had to scratch my head and say, wow, I have never heard this before. I'm going to have to look into this. And I knew that it sounded like Gulf War syndrome. I hadn't been expecting that the vaccine caused Gulf. I just thought it was a possibility. And one should do the research before you give it to two and a half million people. But I didn't expect that this was going to happen. I was more shocked than anyone. Um, But having, you know, I was sort of a, a contact point. So thousands of people eventually contacted me. And among them were pilots. So pilots have an unusual role in the military. 80% of military pilots are not full-timers. They're reserve or national guard. They cost on average $6 million to train. And the military wants to keep them happy. They go to a drill once a month and maybe a couple weeks a year. They'll drill, they get to fly these cool military planes, but most of their money is made working for the commercial airlines or FedEx or UPS. And these soldiers did not want to get chronically ill as a result of their weekend drills. They had to support their families. And so it became clear to these pilots in the military that if anyone was going to be able to fight this vaccine, it would be these reserve pilots. Another advantage the pilots had, besides the fact that they are the most, the cream of the crop in the military, is that if they flew for commercial airlines, they, had, they were able to utilize free tickets. And so they could fly themselves to Washington to lobby in Congress, and they could give free tickets to other people to come and uh, testify before the committees and things like that. Another thing that was different was that I I worked particularly with a group of uh, fighter pilots. So, and they're, I guess, the, the cream of the crop for pilots. And they have been trained in a different way than the rest of the military. The rest of the military, of course, is very hierarchical. You have to do whatever the person ahead of you says. But these people go out and do dog fights with these little fast planes. And it doesn't matter if the person you're fighting against has a rank below you or above you, you criticize each other. So they had been accustomed to being able to say what they thought within the military, which is very different than everyone else. And they were not willing to accept some stupid vaccine because some person, whether they were a colonel or a general or not, said so but couldn't provide any evidence for it. And so they themselves started doing research. Um, Some of these pilots, one of my best friends who unfortunately died at age 50, probably as a result of flying an A-10, which had um, depleted uranium munitions. Um, And so perhaps he he got some depleted uranium inside his body, but he died of cancer at 
uh, right before 50, you know, he would go to the FDA and pour through documents and uh, other people in his um, group, Tom Remfer was another, uh, just got very deep into the original documents, the original license for the vaccine. And then chair of the government reform committee, I was able to get boxes and boxes and boxes uh, from the CDC and from the FDA of original testing for the vaccine. And we learned through all this data how badly uh, this vaccine had, had been tested and that it had never met numerous FDA regulations. And so we were able to bring that information forward and and thereby, um, you know, get some traction. Wow. Well, um, moving on, I, I was um, curious also um, about a study that you mentioned uh, recently about um, researchers working at Israel's state-run bioweapons lab at Nesayona um, regarding a method for concentrating anthrax spores with silica particles. So um, I was wondering why you found this paper significant and how you think it may relate to the anthrax attacks. Someone contacted me just a couple of months ago um, uh, with a theory um, that um, an Israeli had, who had worked at the Israeli Biodefense Center at Nesayona might be responsible for the anthrax attacks. And I, I thought that if, in fact, some official uh, biowarfare scientist was responsible, it wouldn't have been a lone nut. And I poo-pooed. I said, I've heard enough about lone nuts. I'm done with lone nuts. But this person included in the documents they gave me um, an article written by different scientists at Nesayona describing a method that used um, magnetic silicon particles to to purify anthrax and ultrasound to disrupt the, the outer portion of the spore, which is called the exosporium, which allows silicon to get in more easily to the spore coat. And so this, this paper, which was published around 2010 or 2006, um, possibly provides the recipe for how the anthrax in the second set of letters was made. However, it may not provide that recipe, but it does give a possible way in which silicon would have found its way into the spore coat. That's as far as I've gotten with it. The, the issue of the silicon in the spore coat, one thing the FBI did not want anyone to get into what was the, an, the, the special preparation of the anthrax in the second set of letters, because that probably would have led to a real biowarfare program. And so they kept changing their story about what the anthrax looked like. Was it weaponized? Wasn't it weaponized? How much silicon? How much tin? How much oxygen? Where was it located? Blah, 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 blah. You know, they, they threw out a lot of misleading information. So um, I think it's a very promising lead, but I don't know that this paper necessarily um, is going to be the key that unlocks it. 
Right. Well, more than anything else, I think it shows that, you know, the U.S. and, you know, an allied nation like Israel had their biodefense or rather, you know, bioweapons programs um, basically examining uh, these types of methods for, you know, experimenting with anthrax in ways that are hard to justify as biodefense or that have, you know, seemingly odd ties to the anthrax attacks as opposed to uh, non-aligned nations like Saddam Hussein's Iraq, for example, who was initially blamed uh, as having, or, or, you know, it was initially claimed that Saddam Hussein and, and, and Iraq had some sort of connection to the anthrax attacks when they initially took place, right? Helping to, to mm-hmm. make the case for war. Um, so it's interesting to see that, you know, Israel and also, you know, the, some of those U.S. CIA programs like Clear Vision and, and Project Jefferson, you know, it definitely seems like the thing, you know, uh, the more suspect states were, uh, you know, aligned with the U.S. as opposed to uh, unaligned, I guess you could say. Um, but uh, all of this brings me to my last question. Um, so given everything we've discussed today, I'm wondering, um, you know, your opinion on the role that emergent biosolutions is set to play in the production of several COVID-19 vaccine candidates. Um, these include, you know, the vaccine candidates of AstraZeneca and Novavax, a few others, I think it's about four or five in total. Um, so, um, you know, given their, their track record, uh, what do you make of that? Okay, let me go back a little bit. After 9-11 and the anthrax letters, um, people who know how to make money through government contracting realized this had opened up a wild west of biodefense and that it wasn't clear. I mean, if you think that another country or person could use biological weapons against us, well, there's, you know, thousands of possibilities, including novel agents that have never seen, been seen before, which it's possible the coronavirus that we're suffering from today is, is one of those. But so what, what kind of products do you need to prepare for that? Well, obviously, it's not clear, you know. And if the enemy knows you have an anthrax vaccine, then they're not going to use anthrax, right? Or if they know you have a smallpox drug, they're not going to use smallpox. So what do you do? Well, the thing is, it seems like it didn't matter because the people who wanted to make all the money and the people in the government who are going to buy these products didn't actually care that much. So instead of looking for generic products that might be good for a wide range of organisms, for instance, if, if they all used a certain spike protein, target the spike protein, or if they all use some other special way to get into cells, target that. Instead, they went after the same old, same old types of drugs and vaccines, saying anthrax is our problem, smallpox is our problem, blah, blah, blah. So we need lots of different smallpox vaccines because our usual smallpox vaccine is dangerous. It's known to, even in the old days when they vaccinated children, it was known to kill one in a million children. And now that children with, you know, immune compromising cancer are living, with their immune compromise, it would kill more than that. So they had to develop another smallpox vaccine for another segment of the population that couldn't take the first vaccine. And then they developed, different companies developed smallpox drugs. It was said the drugs were probably not necessary because 
The vaccine could be used up to four days after an exposure, and because the incubation period was so long, it would still work, even if given four days later. But that didn't matter. So um, a friend of uh, Bill Clinton, um, what's his name, big donor for the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman or something, Perlman. Ron Perlman? Uh, Ron Perlman um, bought a company that was making a smallpox drug, when it was exposed that there was this corruption around it, the the sale to the former assistant secretary for preparedness um, was halted. But then 18 months later, the sale went through. So he made about half a billion dollars on that. Um, and so that has continued from all, all the assistant secretaries for preparedness and BARDA is, a, is an agency designed to help produce new products. So not just to buy products that already exist, but to encourage the development by giving companies money to help them develop new products. So BARDA right now gets to spend about a billion and a half a year, and then the assistant secretary for preparedness and emergency response has another billion plus to spend a year on companies like Bioport, which has which they got rid of their old name because it had such a bad connotation. Now it's called Emergent Biosolutions. So, um, Cadillac, as you pointed out in your articles, and the Washington Post has who had been a lobbyist and had formed a company with Fuad Al-Hibri, the, the chairman of the board of uh, Bioport, now Emergent, has, as soon as he came in and got the job of assistant secretary for preparedness, started giving huge contracts to Emergent Biosolutions and Fuad Al-Hibri. And now Emergent is their number one contractor for that agency. And Rick Bright, who uh, supposedly was a whistleblower against Trump over hydroxychloroquine, he actually was part of this. He was uh, head of board for both Trump and for Obama and was, again, you know, helping to spend billions of dollars on very questionable products that the U.S. would probably never need. We already had a supply of, for example, smallpox for vaccine for every American, and yet Cadillac is buying much, much more. Even though when they tested years ago, in 2003, when the old smallpox stockpile was tested, it, it, was, it had been sitting around for 25 years, and it was still pretty good. And you could even dilute it and use it in American. So anyway, the, basically it's a wild west of products. You can develop and sell whatever you want. Almost all of it gets stockpiled and never gets used. And then the US government, as it expires, buys more. And the quality is very questionable. Maybe the quality is good, maybe it's not. Some of it's licensed, some of it's not gone through proper testing. But, but we have a $7 billion stockpile of this stuff. So Emergent is, a, is at the moment the, the most, um, is the beneficiary of the most purchases by the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness. Um, also, they were the beneficiary of a program under Obama in which uh, Kathleen Sebelius paid for 
several, three or four different centers around the United States to create basically generic factories that could be used to produce antidotes or vaccines in the event of bioterrorism or a terrible pandemic. So hundreds of millions of dollars or billions were used to create these empty factories and emergent biosolutions, of course, because they really, their, their strength and they are probably stronger in this way than any other company in the United States, their strength is getting government contracts. Um, so they got a contract, they created one of these factories in Baltimore. And at the beginning of the, this coronavirus pandemic, um, they were given by the assistant secretary $628 million to start refurbishing it and getting it ready to make vaccines for coronavirus. And subsequently, this company, Emergent Biosolutions, has inked contracts to be the manufacturer of vaccines that have been designed by Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and Novavax. So three of the eight vaccines that were selected by the federal government for advanced development and manufacturing are going to be manufactured by Emergent. Now they're gonna probably be labeled Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca. They probably won't be labeled Emergent, but you need to know that these are, the, the anthrax vaccine manufacturer is going to be making a lot of the coronavirus vaccines. In addition to manufacturing these vaccines, they have two, you know, there are over a hundred vaccine candidates out there and they have two more vaccine candidates, not in advanced development, that may still wind up being produced as coronavirus vaccines. And I, I don't think they have names yet. So that's, that's where we stand today. Wow, I just think it's so disconcerting that Emergent Biosolutions is allowed, you know, to even continue operating in the United States and the fact that they, you know, are being given, uh, you know, uh, allowed to manufacture these vaccines for coronavirus, which are likely to be uh, in some states potentially mandatory. You know, it's almost like history is repeating itself, but on a much, much larger scale, whereas it's not mandatory for necessarily just the military anymore, you know, but potentially, you know, entire communities and even entire states. Um, but with that being said, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Nass, for sharing just a wealth of information about emergent biosolutions and when they were bioport, the anthrax vaccine and the anthrax attacks. So that's it for this episode of Unlimited Hangout, which is available exclusively on Rockfin. Thanks for tuning in.